You know, usually I turn that way when I'm praying. This time I'll, I was right here, so I don't know. All right, so what book are we studying? Job. Very good. So, well, it's Job. Job is correct. So, yeah, I do it all the time, to be honest with you. All right, so grab, grab your Bible and open up to Job. We will pick up in chapter 2 this evening, and our goal, and I use that term, um, hopefully, is to get through all of chapter 7. Now, we're not going to do that by reading verse by verse, um, but we're going to try to at least thematically get through that far. We will go verse by verse through 2, probably 3, and then we'll kind of start doing verses at a time um, from 4 on. So, just to recount the story so far, we had three main characters in the first chapter of Job. There's other side characters, but who are the three main characters in Job chapter 1? God, Job, and Satan. And we have two characters, I mean three characters, we have two scenes. So there's, I'll call it scene 1. And then scene two, what are those two scenes? All right, so one's in heaven. God's talking to Satan. Core, what's the other one? All right, all right. So that's our basic framework for the narrative. Now, the narrative's going to take a dramatic shift in chapter three in terms of style. So far, we're reading this. It's just a story that's written down. Um, when we get to chapter 3, everything suddenly becomes poetry. Now, can you see that in the way your Bible is laid out? You'll have paragraph form for two chapters. And in chapter 3, it's essentially poetry until the very end of the book. You'll have about a three or four paragraphs at the very end that are back to narrative form. So, so far, it's only been narrative and then we pick up into that poetic form. So we're going to go into a, a section that's, the wording is more like reading one of the prophets and less like reading Samuel or Ruth or something like that. It's going to be a little more, um, honestly, it's just more difficult to read. Most people struggle with the poetry. And part of our additional struggle here is that poetry is not written in English. It's translated into English. And so we're going to have times where the wording is interesting. And honestly, there's a few times where translations just make their best effort and we do the best we can. But the gist is a little bit easier with poetry because unlike narrative or say like the epistles, where we're trying to make sure we, we follow every verb, every preposition, every statement has its own kind of meaning, its own connection into the whole when we get into poetry, it's more like there's chunks, and we, we see this whole chunk has this one idea. So it actually makes it a little easier to boil it down when we do that. And the wording itself may be more complicated, but the teaching aspect is a little more simplistic. Does that make sense at all, what I'm saying? Or is that just background stuff as we go in? So, so far in the narrative, seen heaven and then seen earth, we alternate between them. So in scene one, what's just the basic scenario that happens between God and Satan in the first chapter? Sorry, I was trying to see what that was. All right, so Satan asks permission to test Job. But what's, why does the scenario start in the first place? God tells everyone or 
Uh, look at how good Job is. Satan, look at how good Job is. Have you considered him? And what's Satan's answer to the question? Of course he likes you. You've, and he uses this phrase. I'll put it on scene two because he's talking about scene two. Here's Job. You put a hedge. You put a hedge around Job. Now, you know, I grew up in a world where I just didn't know what a hedge was. I only had this passage of scripture in the typical prayer lingo of put a hedge of protection around someone. What's the idea of a hedge? It's, it's just a barrier, right? It's a kind of a, an organic wall, so to speak. All right, a barrier of protection has been put around Job. In other words, God's letting things happen out in the wild, out in the world, but what's, what's God letting happen here in, in Job's hedge? Only good stuff. No bad stuff. Blessing only. And Satan says, the only reason God, the only reason Job is following you is because you're giving him all this stuff. Because the circle is safe, and so he follows you. So the accusation then is if you take that away, what will Job do? Curse you. Curse you. Curse you, to, curse you to your face. It'll be a very direct, very bold, you, I no longer want to follow you, God. Of course, you know Satan does that. He loses his family, loses his possessions, his wealth, his servants. He basically loses everything. Except for, there's two things that weren't touched in particular in chapter 1. His body and his wife, they're not touched. He loses everything else, and then he falls down. And he makes that famous statement, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, if that's what happens in scene two. If we come back to scene one then, Satan has made this accusation to God that Job's only following you because you gave him stuff. Well, who wins round one? God does, right? Then the whole, the whole idea is, what's Job say when all of it happens? Blessed be the name. Interesting it chose the word blessed, because what was Satan saying Job would do? Curse. Those are the opposite terms of one another. So he blesses God rather than curses God. So he wins. All right, now we pick up in chapter 2. So again, it's same basic scene. We're going to repeat the narrative almost verbatim at the beginning. So there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, the wording does not give us a timeline other than this is probably not the next day. You follow what I'm saying? So Job lost everything. It's just him and his wife now, no possessions, and we don't have any idea how much time has passed. It could have been a week. It could have been a couple of years. We just don't know. Some indefinite period of time has passed, and here the scenario is again. The sons of God come together. They present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself to the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Again, this is the exact same lingo as before. Satan answered to the Lord and said, From walking up and down on it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I skipped the part. From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant 
Job. So what's different in the scenario so far? Nothing. It's exactly the same. Now, poor Job, right? I mean, who brought it up the second time? Still God. says, have you considered Job? Now, he ends it a little differently this time. So have, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So we just know when we left off, he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now some indefinite period of time has gone down, and I think the context leads us to believe that it's an extended period of time. This isn't like a few days. This is probably months, possibly years, because God is still proud of how faithful his servant Job is. It's one thing to be proud, you know, 24 hours in. But God's still proud in some indefinite future increment. Job's lost all of this stuff, but he's still being faithful. But hear how he, he says it. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. That's going to be a key word. Without reason. So why did God do this stuff to Job? From Job's vantage point, it is without reason. Meaning, and this is key to the book, as we go forward, we have to hold on to this and know this from beginning to end. Did Job deserve what happened to him? He did not. Now, we could talk about depravity. Sure, no one is perfectly righteous before the Lord. But how's the book start out when God's talking about Job? He's the best I got. Nobody who walks upright and blameless like Job. And then out of God's mouth itself, he says, I did all of this stuff from at least from Job's perspective without cause. There's nothing in Job's life, according to God, that would make God want to do this to him. So there's no vengeance. There's no condemnation. There's no retribution here. This is just as, as innocent as someone could possibly be. Job is experiencing evil in an innocent position. All right, let's make sure we fill in. So, well, no, we haven't done that yet. Let's keep going. All right, let's see. Verse 4. So then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So Job's accusation, I mean, Satan's accusation is basically God didn't erase the hedge. He didn't really erase the hedge in the first round. What did God do? He just made it smaller. But he still had a hedge. He's still Wolverine from the X-Men series. He can blow up his house, destroy his car, but he's just going to heal and walk out without a scratch on his body. I mean, who's scared in that scenario? So Satan's, what's Satan trying to get him to say? Let's, let's get that off of there, is Satan's claim. You remove it completely, and let's see what he does. Now, if you remove it completely, I mean, what could Satan go and do to Job immediately? He could kill him. Well, that's not a very interesting story. 
And, <laughs> it's, it doesn't really answer our question in theodicy, if you remember the term from last week. So that's not what's going to happen. So God is going to maintain a very small hedge in a very limited sense around Job. And it's almost, in the end, it's actually one of the things God complains. I mean, Job complains that God left this much hedge. So here, what do you think the hedge is? Do anything. Just can't die. Think about that. What's that sound like? That sounds more like torture. Right? But that, and that's what Job is going to feel like later. Not yet. That's not where we are. So, so what he says, stretch out your hand. Touch, uh, let's see, verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand. In other words, sure, go do whatever you want. Only spare his life. So Satan can do anything to Job now. Just not kill him. Anything but death. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now, go on a study Bible, you read a commentary, everybody tries to figure out what disease this is. The fact of the matter is, is it's probably Job syndrome. It's just something Satan has specially crafted for Job himself. Some sort of disease that is causing him pain on what part of his body? Every single square inch of his tissue is hurting now. So much so, it says he took a piece of broken pottery, that's ostracai, that's where we get our term ostracize, actually, and uh, he, he takes this broken piece of pot, and he is scratching himself with it while he sits in ashes. Now, ashes isn't real significant to us, but in their culture, ashes, this is a symbol of grief. And if you were in a state of mourning or uh, deep grief, you would use ashes. And when Job's friends show up in a minute and ashes are involved, it's kind of like they're prepping for the funeral. It's kind of the idea. Job, Job's, he's totally lamenting and giving up. And then verse 9, there's a lot of different ways to read this. Um, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Now, what's this integrity? Specifically, what's that mean in this case? Belief in God. But not just belief in God. It's a little more. I mean, Satan believes in God. Loyalty is a better word. Yes, his loyalty to God. Like he's, he's defending God. God, no, blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord did this. Blessed be his name. I'm still going to praise him. I'm still going to serve him. I'm still going to worship him. At no point is he doubting, you know, existence of God. That's not an option for Job. He's got a completely theistic worldview. There's not even a category for Job that God wouldn't exist. Um, the question that's going to come up is, this God that I worship, is he good? That's the really only thing that's a variable right now. And right now, how would Job answer the question? Yeah, he's, he's good. Blessed be his name. He's worthy of praise. This is happening to me, but he's worthy of praise. So his wife is basically saying what? Or, well, we didn't finish that, did we? So do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God, and die? So what's her advice? <laughs> so you can really interpret this in categorically in two distinct directions. There's a lot of nuance to how you do it. But either this is her saying, you know, kind of a, in a pathetic sort of, your life is ruined. You might as well just 
give up on this integrity. Maybe, I mean, if you think about it, who else experienced all the loss of chapter 1? Every bit of it. Nothing was new <laughs> until the flesh thing started happening. Otherwise, you had two people experiencing the exact same grief. I mean, it was her kids, too. It was her farm, too. It was her house, too. It was her possessions, too. Everything's the same. I mean, maybe she's just not as faithful as Job, and she's just reached a breaking point. It's like, let's just give up on this. Or, in the other direction, is maybe this is just a moment of pity. When you see a suffering animal, what's your, one of your gut reactions? Maybe it put it out of its misery. Maybe she just wants Job to ah, just end it. Just give up. Whatever trial, whatever test this is, just let it go and die. Well, yeah, we don't know. We have no idea which one she's doing. But either way, Job doesn't take kindly to the advice. And he says, he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Now, what does it mean to be a fool, biblically speaking? Yes, exactly. It's, it's, fool equals atheism. Now, you can mean atheist in really two different ways. You can mean atheist in a theological, I do not believe God exists. Or you can be an atheist in the sense that you're acting like he doesn't. Does that make sense? A practical atheism. She, clearly, she believes God exists. Who does he, she want Job to curse? God. Expecting who to kill Job when he does that? God to kill Job. So she's not genuinely being atheistic, you know, with the comment, but it's a practical sort of atheism. Let's just let's just join that not fear God camp. Who cares what God says? Let's just do our own thing. Let's, in other words, let's quit being loyal to God. And of course, he's saying, no, that's foolish. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not also receive? evil. Think about that. What's Job basically saying? He's defining his integrity or what we might call his loyalty as doing what before God? Accepting whatever God gives. God gives good? Awesome. I'll take it. God gives bad? Awesome. I'll take it. That's his loyalty before the Lord. That's his faithfulness. That's how we're defining that. So in this, Job did not sin with his lips. So is Job correct in stating it this way? Yeah. It's exactly the correct answer. So let's fill in a few blanks going in. So the Lord gave, the Lord took away, but Job still blesses the name of the Lord. That was the, that's what God says to Satan, basically. And then Satan is set loose to harm Job, but only within limits. And then the implication there is Satan only has the authority to do what he is permitted. So anything Satan does, why can he do that? Because God allows him to. So think about the temptation of Jesus. Remember, one of the temptations is um, Satan is offering to Jesus, I'll give you all of this. Remember that scenario? He's Well, why does Satan have any of that? He said, yeah, that, that authority had been granted to him. Well, granted by who? It's all from God. And it's just an example of that. Satan can only do what he is permitted to do. Of course, we know what happens. And then the next section, a fool 
as one who denies the existence of God, theologically or practically. To believe in God is to acknowledge his sovereignty over good and evil, and which is what Job is doing. So because of that, Job faithfully received evil from the Lord. I use that word evil because where's the word evil come from? That's exactly what Job calls it. Shall we receive good and not receive evil? So Job is defining his faithfulness, and the Bible is saying in this he did not sin. He's defining his faithfulness as receiving evil from the Lord and submitting to the Lord anyway. You follow me? So that's the scenario. Now it's going to go downhill from here. So I put in there a few weeks later. Um, because let me just show you why I'm saying a few weeks. So now when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. So all these guys are from different places. So we know enough time has transpired for word to get out that Job is sick. So not only did he lose his stuff, now Job is sick. His friends hear about it. And on their own, they all come to hang out with Job. So this is Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they made an appointment together to come show him sympathy and comfort him. So there's been enough dialogue, enough time going down for them to come together, make a plan, get dressed a certain way, and show up at Job's house to give him comfort. But even when they get there, it's, it's worse than they expected. When they saw him from a distance... They did not recognize him. Now, why don't they recognize him? Yeah, he's, he's physically, fleshly sick all over his body. So he didn't even look like the same guy. And they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads towards the heavens. So I think this response from his friends is probably quite legitimate. Um, they've seen something that has genuinely affected them it's torn them up on the inside that that feeling in the new testament where jesus was moved with compassion it's really the idea it literally the word means bowel movement but we use that to refer to them i love the word but it just means you know when you see something that just hurts you it, it your gut kind of sickens turns you on the inside that's that word. In fact, the word compassion, usually in the New Testament, is that word. It's, but this is that same sort of compassion. They see Job, and there's this, oh, wow. That is so much worse than they possibly fathomed. So they, they enter into a state of mourning. And in verse 13, then they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. Because that's a long time. So they're, they're, they're hanging out with Job. And I think up to this point, I mean, for one, they probably expect him to die. And so this is like when you've gathered the family and everybody hangs out in the hospital room because nobody wants to leave, because everybody wants to be in there when it happens kind of thing. Well, some family members don't, but a lot of them do. And honestly, that's probably what his friends are doing. This is the closest people he's got. His wife, we're assuming, is nearby. We don't, she, she's out of the story now. But his friends are hanging out. Seven days, seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was very great. 
Now, the book of Job would be a very different story if everyone had just kept their mouths shut. Shut, <laughs> shut. But they don't. But who speaks first? Job does. So let's, uh, let's read Job's lament. That's how mine titles the section. Job laments his birth. Job opened his mouth, cursed the day of his birth, and said. So what's, Job, what's the verb used for what Job's been saying so far? He's been blessing. But how's this section start? And now he's cursing. Now I wish we could have a round three in heaven where God dialogued with Satan after this. It's not in there. So I really would like to hear how that follow through, how it follows through, but we don't get that. It's all from Job's perspective from this point forward, and Job will um, meet with God in the end. Now, before we read any more of chapter 3, I want you to turn to the last chapter of Job. It's very important that we see this. This is a guiding principle as we go through the book. We need to know that this is how it is presented. I mean, you all know where the story's going, I presume. But we need to make sure we know this statement. This statement has to remain true from beginning to end. Here's the statement. This is chapter 42. I'm going to pick up in verse 7. It says, And the Lord spoke these words to Job. Sorry. And, and the Lord had spoken these words to Job. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. You follow that? So, what's it saying? So, what do we know about what Job preaches in the book? What Job says is right. Does that make sense? But what the friends say is, is not. Now, that's going to be a very interesting statement. So God, at the end of the book, says, Job was right, your friends were wrong. So everybody with me on that? So with that in case, so we're going to read the first thing Job has to say in which Job is right. Okay, all right, you're prepared, okay? You ready for this? Let's read. This is what Job is saying that is supposedly right. Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night... Let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of a year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Now, why curse the day? Because that day let him be born. So what happens to that day, And according to his cursing? All right, no sunlight, meaning no sunlight, it's poetic. What, what's that mean? 
But, dar but, but dark. So visually, what's the darkness? Right, that's what it is theologically. But it's a uh, it's storm, storm cloud. So, so visualize this poetry as we go through. So instead of day, during the daytime, we have darkness during the daytime, which means this is stormy, gloomy. Let this be a nasty day. Now, where, where should it fall on the calendar? Don't even, don't even put it on the calendar. We're going to skip this day. Uh, technically, it can't be both of those, right? You can't have it as a day of all darkness and skip it. But what's he saying? Cursed, cursed the day that I was born. Amen, Job. <laughs> well, at the end, is Job right or wrong? Job has not sinned so far in the story. Now, does that feel wrong? I mean, doesn't it to read a passage like that and say, I mean, if someone talk, came up to you and made this statement, this was their attitude for the day, would you feel like they were doing well or doing poorly? That's pretty bad. You know, I mean, this is, this is dark and it gets worse. All right, verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. I'm still born, right? He's, he's saying, what would he rather have happened? I'd just be dead. Why did the knees receive me? Or why did the breasts that I should nurse? Yeah, even, even my mama's breast should have said, no, not this one. We can't let this guy live. For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. And then I would have been at rest. What was he saying? If I had never been born, or if at the very least I had been born dead, I'd have had a much better life. I'd be much more peaceful than what I ended up with. I don't think we would call that a good attitude. But this is where Job is. It says, With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, or who filled their houses with silver, or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light, there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. And where's there? Well, in the Old Testament, we call it Sheol, the grave, the ground, dead, death. It says there's, there's rest there. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the greater there, and the slave is free from his master. So what's he praising now? He's praising death. And death is a lot better than what I've got right now. And again, Job is not doing anything wrong in making this statement. Well, would you feel like you were, though? If you, this is your morning prayer. You get up and like, God, you shouldn't have let me be born. Curse the day you brought me here. Well, maybe we could say, okay, well, so far, he's not really questioning God. He's just complaining about how bad life is. You've had that moment, right? You just, woe is me. You just hate the day. I, I, I have this statement I say, and it's really a bad statement, but I say it all the time. It's theologically bad. I mean, Technically, it's not bad. Nobody think anything of it. But something bad happens, and I say, figures. I mean, what am I, what am I really saying when I say that? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a, 
there's a bad attitude in it, and at the end of the day, that bad attitude has to be directed somewhere. And if I'm not careful, where am I directing that bad attitude? Well, where's Job directing his bad attitude? Well, let's see where he ends up. Let's see where he ends up. Verse 20, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter soul? Now, why is light given? Who gives light? Clearly, for the rest of the paragraph, he's, he's questioning, basically, why does God let this stuff happen? God, why do you do this? Why, why, do, you, why do you let this happen? There's people who long for death, but it comes not. They dig for it more than for hidden treasure, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in play on words where does that come from when we started job is faithful because he's got this hedge and now how's he view the hedge god's hedged me in it's a curse and what's the curse specifically that he can't die the curse is that he can't die so he's cursing the very hedge that was the blessing at the beginning. So it's, 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 it's beautifully written, but it's horribly sad. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So that's our first statement from Job after there's been a gap. So we talked last week how, you know, when you go through a difficult season, it's easy to, day one, say, Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's easy to say that on day one. Fast forward a few weeks, and what's Job saying? Curse the day that I was born. I want to die. I'm ready to end it all. I really want this to just stop, but it can't. I mean, the hedges around Job. I mean, what if Job tried and couldn't? Yeah, that's part of the plan. He, he cannot die right now. He's not allowed. What's the address of the scripture where God says he was right? Said he was what? Where he was right and what he said. It's uh, chapter 42, okay. picking up in verse 7, and it's just in that whole paragraph. Okay. All right, I think we've missed some blanks. So Job's response. So, number one, Job curses the day that he was born. And then, Job believes Sheol, her death, would be a better place for him now. And then, basically, he ends, Job questions why God would allow such suffering to exist at all. The modern version of this question, why would God create people... He knew would experience such suffering. That's the modern version of the question. Still gets asked, right? Have you ever heard that? Ever asked that yourself? This is exactly what Job is saying. He's questioning, really, the goodness of God. How good is God? Well, why would our God let these bad things happen? Now, does Job in any way deny that God is the one in charge? No. In any way is he denying God's sovereignty? Is he denying his loyalty to God? 
No, not actually, no. He's He's got some, he wants to have a conversation with God about this, but he's not changing teams. He's not saying, you know, I don't like Yahweh anymore. I don't think I like Yahweh. I'm going to try Bell. That's not what's happening here. He's got some deep-seated concerns about the nature of his God. But it's his God. It's the one he's loyal to. He has received both good and evil from this God, but he is sick of it. Does that make sense? Have you ever been had a family member you were sick of? <laughs> Did you still love them? Yeah. If you didn't, it doesn't work for my analogy. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, so how are we doing on top? Ooh, not good. Um, well, let's do some of this. Okay, so the three friends. So we got Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They are basically going to represent, in the narrative, religious people. And it's, it's not exactly positive. They're not exactly the bad guys, but they're not exactly the good guys either. Um, so there, now that Job has given his spiel, and he is questioning God. He's not being disloyal to God. But he's questioning, why would God let this happen? I don't, I don't understand how God can do this. They're going to have, I mean, if you ever hear someone question God, I mean, what's your response? You might not say it, but you're thinking, do you, you, you grow defensively? Naturally, it are. You just hear someone critique someone you like, you get defensive. You know, I'll like some preacher, and even if the preacher says something stupid, and people start critiquing, and I'm like, yeah, but I mean, you know, come on. He's, he's got all this other, you know, there's just this natural defensive reaction and so they're all going to make this natural defensive reaction. Now, each of these friends will correct Job, next blank here, with partial truths. So they're going to give us information that, well, if you just look at it from the surface, you would actually back up and say, all right, well, technically what Eliphaz just said is correct. Technically. But what we're going to see is that usually these Technically correct answers just aren't the whole picture. They're too narrow. They're too focused. And in all of these scenarios, the way they're using some mostly true statement and applying it to Job's life is absolutely incorrect. And that's what's ultimately going to happen when he gets to the end. So we're going to... I can do it in three minutes. So I'm going to give you... <laughs> I'm going to give you the first one. So Eliphaz is going to stand up and correct Job. And this is going to kind of be the paradigm for how all of them happen after. So I'll give you an outline on the back. Most of the stuff on the back is actually an outline. You'll see there's a cycle. So Eliphaz speaks, Job speaks. Bildad speaks, Job speaks. Zophar speaks, Job speaks. And all of their answers, so Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they basically say the same thing every time they talk. They'll, they'll come up with a new creative way to say it, um, but it's basically, they have one argument. And so when we do it here in chapter four, you'll basically get the gist of their argument from beginning to end. Like they never really come up with anything more clever to say other than they say it more cleverly. But the basic idea is just exactly the same. And then Job, however, so we're going to spend next week looking at Job's responses because Job is on an emotional roller coaster. He's asking questions. He's navigating stuff. He's kind of doing dialogue with some of their theology is correct, 
But how does that work in his life? And his dialogue is very interesting. So next week, we'll kind of survey what Job is doing. So I'm just going to give you what Eliphaz does in the first section, and that'll basically set the stage for everything that happens in the other. So briefly, let's look at chapter 4. Eliphaz starts in verse 1. So then Eliphaz the Termonite answered and said, he gives a few opening, like, Joe, be patient. I'm going to correct you. Just don't hate me when I do it, sort of remarks. And then in verse 7 is where he actually begins his his statement. You ever pad someone with a few things before you, you disagree with them? That's all that was. So six verses of padding. And then verse 7, he says, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So what's what's he implying? Job, you sinned. There is a direct correlation between the problems in your life and some sin in your life. Direct correlation. So he's basically asking this question. But when have the innocent ever perished? And here's his basic theology. And you can get that you read all of chapter 4 and 5. He's got a big, long-winded answer. The one God loves will prosper. And, of course, the one God loves is the one who does righteousness. Um, you'll have peace, you'll have many children, and you will be old. In other words, you won't die young. So there's a direct, you obey, you get blessed. So another way to say it would be, you reap what you sow. Now, is that true? I got two different answers. Do you reap what you sow? I'm actually quoting Galatians 6, 7. Okay. Okay. All right. So you can misapply this statement, right? And that's what Eliphaz has done. He's saying that everything in life, and really if you apply it this way, it's not even Christianity anymore, and it's not Galatians 6, 7 anymore. There's another idea, and it's called karma. We don't believe in karma as Christians. It's a completely different concept. And it's the idea that whatever you do has a direct correlation to what happens in your life. You sow good things, you get good things. You sow bad things, you get bad things. Eliphaz is saying, is it Eliphaz? Yeah. That's a rock solid, bet your bottom dollar on it. This is guaranteed in all of life. If something happens to you, this is discipline for a specific sin. Now, is that the case in Job's story? No, we know it's not. It's been directly stated that that is not the case. By who? By God. By God himself. He said this happened to Job without cause. Now, we see this in the New Testament, right? There was a man born blind, and the, they're asking Jesus, so why was this man born blind? Did he sin, or did his parents sin? What was Jesus' answer? No. <laughs> not, neither one of those. This man was born blind so that I could get some glory by healing him. So why did the man get born blind? So Jesus would have a blind guy to heal. That was why. It had nothing to do with direct sin. Now, can there be things that happen in your life that are a consequence of sin? Absolutely there can. No question. You can do things that have direct physical consequences. You can do things that have spiritual consequences consequences. You can do something and God can. He doesn't always, but he can't punish you for it. That happens. We see it in scripture, but we don't see as a hard, fast, steady, every time that's how it goes down. 
And so Job's answer, I'll be a couple minutes over, but I'm going to be pretty close, which picks up in chapter 6. So all of that was chapter 4 and 5. You read through there, you'll see all of that just hashed out in different poetic ways that somehow God punishes the evil and gives good things to the good. Job's basic response is, um, okay, well, he says, let's see, verse 3 of chapter 6, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, if you weigh out my calamity, therefore my words have been rash. So Job calls his words rash, and just to paraphrase that, he's saying, I'm rash in my words because my circumstances are truly terrible. Have you ever said something a little more dramatically than you might if you'd had time to think about it and filter it out a little bit more? Yeah. Uh, certainly. So Job's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm talking a little harshly. Fair enough. But I mean, look at my circumstances. They're terrible. And so he's saying, I kind of have an excuse. All right, give me a little bit of grace. And I love verse 14. It says, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Who's he talking about? He's calling them out. He's like, so you show up to grieve with me, and your first statement is, well, it's your fault. You're suffering because it's your fault. You ever had anybody counsel you that way? Going through a hard time in life, and the first answer is, it's your fault. You did this to yourself. How's that make you feel? (laughs) Not the best counseling strategy, I can tell you that right now. So Job's basic statement is, my suffering is not punishment, it's suffering. That's all he says. The whole paragraph, the whole chapter, chapter 6, my suffering is not punishment, it's just suffering. And then he goes through a whole section, the last part of chapter 6, he's (laughs) basically saying... Well, what is it then? If I did a specific sin, can you tell me what it was? Glad I would I would love to know. Because if I knew, I would stop. I would repent. But I don't know what it is. So in other words, he's just saying it's, it's not my fault. All right, and then chapter 7. Let's look at verse 11. And this is kind of just a summary of how he finishes out his argument. He's saying all this bad stuff is happening. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. So what's Job's conviction? I'm going to complain about this. Well, does he have a reason to? Sure he does. Terrible. I mean, his children died. Do you think he's going to talk about it and be sad about it? Of course he is. It's terrible. He's going to talk about it. So our takeaway, it's okay to express sadness in the midst of sorrow. And when you're in that moment, praise the Lord that we have in Job chapter 3 to go back on and say, hey, it's okay to be upset. The most righteous man by God's definition in the Old Testament was very upset and did not sin with his lips when he complained. So if you're upset with God... Who do you need to take it to? Take it to God. Go complain to God about it. And he will be glad you were talking to him. Right? That's the nature of our God. He's, he can handle it. He's, he, he's not going to hear anything from you that takes him by surprise. He's good. And then he ends the whole section. Um, basically, okay, if you look at the last verse. It says, why do you not pardon my transgression or take away my iniquity? I'm sorry, this is of chapter 7. For now I shall lie in the earth... And you're going to seek me, but I shall not be found, basically. Like, 
I'm going to be dead. God, you're going to come looking for me. I'm going to be dead. Sounds kind of like a little toddler. Like, you're going to miss me when I'm gone. <laughs> but that, I mean, that's where he's at. He's, he's broken. And that's, that's where we're going to stop tonight. So Job ends his response by turning to God and asking the simple question. This is what it all boils down to. Why me? Why did you do this to me? Now, the important thing to note is at no point in this whole scenario has he quit being loyal to God. He may be frustrated with God. He's got complaints against God. But God is still his God. And so far, and we'll see to the very end, he's, no matter how mad he gets, he stays faithful to God. And that's the amazing part of the story. We have this false notion that in order to stay faithful to God, God has to do all these good things for me. But what was the accusation Job made, or Satan made to God about Job? Because of the hedge. Yeah, it was because of the hedge. So the whole point of the book of Job is, well, let's take away the hedge and watch my faithful servant Job. Sure, he's going to get mad. He's going to get mad at God. But he's not going to reach that point where we would call it cursing God. Condemns them. Sorry, I don't think I said that one. God condemns them in the end for not tr- speaking truly about him. About him. That would also be true, but sadness is what I was sadness. going for. Yeah. Yeah. Go up two from that. The, my suffering is not punishment. It's suffering. suffering. Yeah. It's, it's just suffering. Okay. All right. Now, it's too bad. No, no, it's worse. God was going to kill them, and Job had to pray for them so they could be forgiven and not be punished. Can you imagine Job having to do that now? Yeah, well, I mean, technically, Satan had permission to take her. Right. Because he had permission to take everybody else. He just didn't take her. So maybe that was a, a ploy. It was part of it. So, all right. Well, let's pray and we'll be done. God, we thank you for tonight. Pray that you bless this uh, study through Job. Help it to put our focus in the right place. So we would trust you. Um, even when the circumstances were not good, that we would bless you and receive good and evil at your hand, trusting that in the end your plan is good and great and worth it. We know a glory will come one day that will be revealed, that will show that everything that we experience is nothing in comparison to that future glory. So God, I pray that you would help us to trust in that, rely in that, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.